together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our God and King, we thank you that your scriptures are sure, that is sure to find us out, sure to speak the truth of who we are before you, as hard as that is to hear sometimes, but wonderfully also sure to speak the truth of who you are. And so, Father God, we pray that as you speak your word to us this day, that we would have soft hearts, that we may know ourselves by the word you speak, that we may know you and so run to you for help. We pray this for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, uh, I said uh, we're in Hebrews 4, uh, verse 11 onwards, but let me start with these words from Psalm 62. Truly my soul finds rest in God. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. The uh, song of the psalmist, uh, a song of uh, the rest that God offers us, that he promises us. And this book of Hebrews that we're working our way through is actually spoken by God to awaken our hearts again, to long for that rest, to, to, to look forward to that day when we will have that heavenly rest with our heavenly father. And if you remember last week, uh, the verse uh, 11 of chapter 4, we, we had this exhortation as we, as we see that rest in front of us. It says this, let us make every effort then to enter that rest. That's your life ambition. Uh, as far as God is concerned, he says, this is what life's about for you. It's about making every effort to reach that rest. Uh, we saw last week that that's a purpose actually sown all throughout the scriptures, from the very first verses to the very last verses, this promise of rest is there. Uh, being with God, being in his presence, uh, being under his good rule, being his people together. And in the past, uh, we were told in Hebrews 1, in the, in the past God has spoken of that promise in many and various ways through the prophets. He, he doesn't want us to miss it, so he kept saying it. But we have the privilege of living in these last days where he's no longer just spoken that promise by the prophets, he's spoken it by his son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, it is a word, the word of the Lord Jesus, spoken directly to us to deliver that promise rest to us. And this word Jesus, even he himself speaks of this rest. Do you remember this verse from last week, perhaps uh, Jesus' most famous words, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Now, there's the promise and how good a promise it is. But frankly, uh, how far from our experience uh, that promise is, rest. Think about our world, uh, 2021, our city, even our own households. Or, or think, of, think about the city of Sydney. If, if you were to use one of these two words to describe the city of Sydney, uh, at rest or restless, uh, which is Sydney. I mean, surely we are a restless city. Uh, too much uh, of life for us is marked by this restlessness, uh, just the pace of life that seems relentless. Or uh, for, for many of us, the effort to get somewhere, sometimes literally or whatever our life goal may be, uh, or the effort to be someone, or the effort to hold things together, things that actually matter, really matter, things like our health or our job or our marriage or our families, things that really matter, they, these things make us restless. We are far from rest. But here's what we do in our restlessness. As we look at that and experience that, that feeling of restlessness, we, we end up externalising. We, 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 we come up with a theory that the, 
the problem is in, in the details of my life. It's out there somewhere. That's why I'm restless. And we think uh, if things would be different somehow in terms of what's going on in my life, then I'd be at rest. And so we plot and plan towards that goal or that destination, whatever it is, that if I could get there, then we'd be settled. Or we plan the escape. We live for the next holiday or at least just for Saturday. Or we catalogue how those around us need to change and then I'd be more at rest. Or we block out that restlessness altogether. And this is Sydney's favourite thing. We block it out either by just denying it or by decadence or by distractions, anything to forget the fact that, well, our hearts are restless. But here's the thing, uh, while we externalise, if we actually think about our restlessness and the restlessness of our city, uh, in all of it there is a common denominator. And it's not out there, it's in here. The, the problem is us. The problem at the heart of our restlessness is our own hearts. Uh, God promises this rest, and as we've seen in Hebrews last week, our, our promise is the sin of unbelief. Uh, it is a 21st century problem. Our city is as restless as any has ever been, but it's not a new problem. Generation after generation, hearing this word of promise from our God has responded with the same way, turning away in hard-hearted unbelief. And Hebrews actually has been highlighting for us uh, one particular generation from the Old Testament. They're simply called the, the wilderness generation who are on the way to a promised rest, the, the promised land. And uh, as they're on the way, as God is speaking that promise to them, they keep responding with, well, sinful unbelief. And we were told back in chapter 3, verse 11, that that was a generation that never reached the rest. They never got there. It's an old problem and it's a 21st century problem. Sydney has the same problem as that generation, the heart of, well, our own hearts, our own unbelief. A sinful, unbelieving heart that hears God's promise of rest, but as we hear it, our hearts grow hardened to it, convinced that rest is found elsewhere. It's in one of those externalities that uh, we think if that was there, then everything would be good. Our heart is the problem, and it's not a small problem. Uh, if you've got Hebrews open there, if you flick forward to Hebrews 9.27, here's a, here's a memory verse worth, ha worth having. It uh, basically sums up the future for our world because of our unbelief. The problem is our hearts actually change our destiny. Because of our unbelief, here's our destiny. We're destined to die once and after that face judgment. Instead of rest, that's, that's our future, death and then judgment. And so what does God do about our heart problem? How does he respond? Well, he responds the way he always has. He, he speaks, and he speaks a word straight to our hearts. That, that's what he's aiming for as he speaks. As, as you've got the Bible open there, God, God is aiming right at the problem. He's aiming at our hearts, the sort of the seed of our decision-making, our, our motives, uh, our affections. He, that's what he's speaking to. And if you've got the outline there, you'll see that it's a word that he, he, he's aiming to do three things with. He wants to, it's a word to expose us, it's a word to exhort us, and finally it's a word to help us. Let's look at each of those in turn from our passage. Firstly, a word to expose the restless. Uh, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. Have a look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. What an incredible word. 
And what a remarkable act of, of grace from our God. Uh, the aggrieved party, the one who has seen us turn away from his word of promise, as we turn away and walk away in unbelief, what does he do? Well, he keeps speaking. And it's a word that verse 12 tells us cuts right through all the rubbish, all the rubbish that we blame for our restlessness, and it reveals the intentions of our hearts. It reveals what's in there. You see there in verse 13... Here is a word sharp enough to examine your heart, we're told, in all creation. No part of your life is, is uh, outside the examination of this word. Here is a word that speaks to you in, in, in your real life as you embark upon uh, that new job. He speaks as you simmer after that row you had earlier in the week. He, he speaks as you lie to cover up a mistake. He, he speaks as you enjoy that tasty bit of gossip. He speaks as that temptation you vowed wouldn't beat you again, does beat you again. He speaks. And he speaks as you drive to the, uh, to the doctors for the checkup. In all of this, he speaks to expose what's in our heart. He speaks to expose the malignant growth of sinful unbelief that keeps growing there. He speaks to find us guilty and without defence. I wonder if you know that feeling of being utterly found out with absolutely no excuse, no, no alibi, no, nothing that you can sort of call to, to your defence. Uh, you're guilty. Uh, in my role of, uh, as a pastor, I, I meet people uh, regularly who have reached that place for, for various different reasons. And it, it's quite a moment uh, when there's been all sorts of cover-up and then the, the cover-up goes. And, well, firstly, there's the shock of that. But the thing that strikes me every time is beyond the shock, what, what the, the most dominant emotion is relief. That the cover-up can stop, the lies can stop, the bluster can stop. The, the, there's no need to pretend anymore. Well, here's the thing. God, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4, God speaks to get us all to that place. All of us. And his word will do that if we are prepared not to wriggle out from under its examination. He speaks to expose the restless. Secondly, uh, have a look at 4 verse 11. He speaks to exhort the restless. And this is where we were last week. Having exposed our heart, he simply says this to us. See that you make every effort, that you, you don't follow that example of unbelief, that that's not in your heart. Uh, but here's my problem with that. And I wonder if this is how you felt at the end of last week, what we looked at last week. This is where my heart was left. You hear the exhortation to make every effort to enter the rest, to make every effort not to have an unbelieving heart. And I hear that, but my heart betrays me. Here is a word that exposes my unbelieving heart and then tells me not to have a heart like that, to which I want to say I'm trying, but it's exhausting and I keep failing. What's the use of a word that simply finds us out and asks us to be different when we have no power to be? Well, how precious then is the word that he speaks, not just to exhort us, not just to expose us, but to help us. Have a look at chapter 4, verses 14 onwards. How incredibly good it is, the word that follows this word of exhortation. Make every effort, God says, and as we look in ourselves and we think, you know, I can't, then come these words. For verse 14, we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. He is God's son and he is your help. But it does beg another question. So what? 
I mean, try going to our restless city uh, with that news. Imagine walking into the CBD tomorrow and saying, all you who are restless, you have a great high priest. I mean, it's meaningless, isn't it? What does that mean? I mean, even for Christians, and we know this jargon, we know this about Jesus, it can be nothing more than, well, just tired jargon. But here's the truth. There is actually nothing more meaningful, nothing more wonderful, nothing more precious for you as a Christian than knowing that Jesus is your defender, that he is your high priest. That's why I love this book of Hebrews that we're working our way through. In the coming weeks, so over the chapters that we're going to look at, God is going to reveal the full weight of who he is as your high priest. And it's going to be all sorts of detail, and I don't want you to miss the detail, because if we see it together, we'll feel the full weight of joy in knowing that he is beside you as your defender. This high priest, our high priest, Jesus, is a central player in God's plan to deal with our restlessness. Given the problem, our own sinful, unbelieving heart, given the consequences that because of that we face death and then judgment, we need a way to make things right, and it's not in us. And so God establishes, we're told, uh, all throughout the Old Testament, and this is what Hebrews focuses on, a, a system of sacrifice to deal with that problem, where sins are met with the, the sacrifice of animals as an offering to bring forgiveness to sinful, unbelieving people like you and me. And all throughout the Old Testament, and this is what we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, that system was God's megaphone to our world saying sin and its consequences before a holy God are more serious than you could possibly imagine. It's a system that declares to us that the punishment of sin is death. That forgiveness, that is real forgiveness, is incredibly costly and that without the shedding of blood there isn't forgiveness. And the high priest is a key player in that system. And if you've got the, the passage open there, if you flick forward to chapter 5, you'll, you'll see in the first four verses of chapter 5, if you like, the job description for the high priest. Now here's the first thing, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. This high priest, in order to do his job, uh, represents us in matters relating to God. Now, I love that phrase. Uh, here's the high priest who represents you in matters relating to God. Now, think about... Can you think of any matters that don't relate to God? Is there any aspect of the God who created everything that aren't matters that relate to God? So he represents you in everything, all of your life. And this high priest represents our sinful hearts in all of those matters. Uh, Flick forward in Hebrews to chapter 9, verse 7, and we're told, uh, once per year this high priest did this in the Old Testament system. He would enter the dwelling place of God, the the temple, uh, with the blood of animals to cover the sin of the people and and his own sin. That's how he represented them. Here's the second thing about his job description. Not only is he our our representative, in order to be that, chapter 5, verse 1 says, he has to be like us. He had to be one of us so that he can actually represent us, so that he can actually understand what it's like to have a sinful, unbelieving heart, what it's like to be tempted in these ways. and uh, Not to excuse our unbelief, he does it so that he can empathise with your weakness, my weakness, so that 5 verse 2, he can deal gently with you. And finally, here's the third part of his job description. Here's the interview panel for the, the job of high priest. Uh, well, it's a one one-person interview panel. It's not a self-selecting job. You can't put your hand up and say, I'll be the high priest. No, you're called by God alone. And so behold God's grace to sinful, unbelieving people like you and me. The aggrieved party 
seeing us, the accused, has no defense and no resources for a defense, he appoints a defender for us. When it comes to our sin problem, we have a great high priest. He represents us. But again, it begs the question, why is that going to be enough given my sin problem? Uh, Why is his representation before God, my judge, going to be enough? Uh, Especially if if you flick forward in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, we're told that that, the, the high priests, the priests throughout the Old Testament, they were forever having to do this job. Day after day, going in and out to deal with sin, their sin, the sin of the people. They never got to sit down. It was like they, they go in there and deal with sin and they come out and think, oh, okay, job done, but there's someone else there with sin. And so back in they go and this would just go on endlessly. And then there's also this problem. In chapter 10, verse 11, God himself admit, admits that this system of dealing with sin by the sacrifice of animals uh, is inadequate. The blood of animals could never clean a heart of sin. I mean, how could it? How could the blood of Fluffy the sheep ever deal with the infinite offence of me being blessed day after day after day by the God who gave me life and breath and everything else, and then he promises me rest and I turn away in unbelief? How, How on earth is the blood of a sheep enough? But says Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great, great high priest in Jesus, and he is enough. He is enough. You know, all too often uh, when we speak of Jesus, especially to uh, unbelieving friends or, or family, we want to minimise Jesus. We don't want him to be too weird or too big or too unrecognisable. So we, we, we squash him down. We call him a great teacher or a, a really good moral example or he had wise things to say or whatever it may be. And he is all of those things. But we only want Jesus to be like that if we don't see how huge the problem is between God and us because of our sin. God is holy we are sinners. We are destined to die once and then after that face his judgment forever. And in that, we don't need a teacher or a moral example. I need a saviour who can fix the problem. And so in these chapters, Hebrews is building the full-weighted picture for who Jesus really is so that you can be confident that he is enough to represent you. And so chapter 5, verses 5 to 10, give you two reasons for confidence in Jesus. Uh, they are who he is, and who he is like. Firstly, who he is, we're told that uh, like all high priests before him, uh, he didn't take on the job himself, he was given it by his father, God, who is his father. You see there, verse 5, the high priest we have is the very son of God. He was declared to be the son of God at his baptism. You remember that moment when Jesus is baptised, God the Father says, this is my son, I love him, listen to him. And then he proved that he was worthy as the son uh, by his own life and death. We're we're told there that he he learnt obedience, but actually what it means literally is he demonstrated it. He proved he's worthy of this role until it was perfect, until it was complete, we're told. And having been raised from death, he is declared to be the son of God with power and authority. That's who represents you. And so take this in as you think about your own sin and how to deal with it. Our high priest is the loved tested and proved faithful triumphant son of god who is verse six our king how good is that he's the one who represents you and then there's this also to give you confidence not just who he is but who he is like like all high priests we're told he comes from among humanity 
That was God's plan. He shared our weakness. And then uh, if you look at chapter 5, verse 7, uh, it focuses on the last day of his uh, earthly life, the day of his death. And it, it says there, in the, er- in the early hours of the morning, uh, as his disciples are sleeping, utterly exhausted by, by fear and, well, their own failure, he instead is offering up, we're told, prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. That's your high priest. He's offering them up to the one who can save him from death, but he doesn't save him because he had to be like us. And this one, Jesus succeeds where we fail and shrink back. He walked into the full force of our sins on the cross, into the full force of our judgment, and he cried, well, not, I'm getting out of here. You know know what he cried? He said, not my will, but yours be done. And as he prayed that prayer, he was heard. And thank God he was, because that prayer and its proof on the cross is the moment that eternal rest was opened up again for you and I. As he walked up that hill and as he was lifted high on the cross, the whole sacrificial system that God had put into place was coming to fulfilment. Here is the moment that does declare to our world that that the punishment of sin is death and that forgiveness is incredibly costly and that without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. And so all our sin... And all our restlessness hang on him. And all our forgiveness and all our hope rest on him. And he did it. And it was enough. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to say that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this about Jesus. You know it. But you need to hold that truth close in the moments that will come even just today and in this week ahead when you will turn away in sinful unbelief. Moments that Satan sees and he loves them. He loves those moments. But when Satan tempts you to despair and he tells you of the guilt within in those moments and and you just want to run or you want to sort of cover it up or you want to try and make up for it in some way, hear instead the word of our God, we have a great high priest. That's what to remember in that moment. It's the son who represents you. And he doesn't take the blood of animals before God the judge, nor even the blood of another sinful human being. He he takes the blood of the tested and proved forever son of God. He takes the king's blood to cover over our pathetic sin. And so in those moments, we should say, Satan, say what you like, but I know the truth. You are a miserable liar. For here is what my God says when Jesus brings his own blood. As the sacrifice is made, the almighty creator God, who is holy and just, looks upon his son and says, yes, enough. Let forgiveness come. Brothers and sisters, we're told here to make every effort to enter the rest that God promises. And today we've seen how. Run to Jesus. And so as we finish, I want you to focus your attention on verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4. They are, I think, some of the most precious verses in all of Scripture, and we'll finish with these. Here's two things you need to do on the back of what we've seen today. Here's the first of them from verse 14 and 15. Hold fast to Jesus. There's your job. As your heart begins to wander, hold fast to him. Your eternity hangs by the the crimson thread of his blood. 
And our life together as a church hangs by that same thread. Uh, you know, I, I, I look out this morning and I see some faces I've never seen before. Now, if you're brand new here, I want to say that you and me, we've got history. Uh, we're joined by this blood. We have a great high priest. Hold fast to him. You see what it says in verse 15? He is able to sympathise with your weakness. He was tempted in every way as you are, but he was without sin. And as you consider your own struggles and think, what would Jesus actually know what it's like to be tempted as, as I am, as I go throughout the week? Uh, if, if he never gave in, if he, he was without sin, uh, he doesn't know what it's actually like. Well, well listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis that I think uh, destroys that thinking. He said this, a silly idea is current that good people don't know what temptation is. People like Jesus. This is an obvious lie. Only those who have resisted temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does, know, does not know what it would be like after an hour or a lifetime. We have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the temptation until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he is the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows the full weight of temptation. He is the only complete realist. He's the one who represents you, so hold fast to him. And finally, and perhaps most wonderfully, if you do find your hold of him slipping and your heart wandering, see verse 16. Let us then again approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive from him mercy and find gracious help in our time of need. I love this verse. As we grow restless and as we sin again in unbelief, he calls to us again in that moment, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Come to the throne of the Son, your high priest, and find their mercy and gracious, timely help. Help. Uh, we wouldn't say it out loud, but everyone in this room needs help. We are a community of sinners. And here's the thing, you don't deserve help. The mess is of your own making. But here's the thing. You will never deserve the help of Jesus. So if that's what holds you back from coming to him for help, waiting until you feel worthy of it or in an, until enough time has passed or whatever, you will wait forever. Instead, come to him. He lives to represent you. His mercy covers your sin again and again and again and again. Come to him and find the gracious, timely help you need. We have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. His name is Jesus. He is God's son. And from there he calls, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in, well, that your sheer grace, you have provided for us a, a defender one who knows us and knows what it's like to struggle with sin and yet was without sin. We thank you, Father, that in him we have gracious, timely help and mercy. We praise you for him. Amen.